Father, we're grateful for uh, some relief in the cold weather today, and we thank you for the work of the day past, and now for this opportunity to take some time to reflect further on the great uh, work of this age, the building of your church, and we thank you for the wisdom of the ages past and the calling to live wisely and faithfully in our own day. And we pray that our efforts in this study would help us to that end. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, is my uh, mic coming through clearly? Can everybody hear me all right? Yes. Uh, yes. Wonderful. All right. Um, I'm going to step back just a little bit. Um, we're taking up uh, the last part of the spirituality of the church. Um, and I want to get through that um, relatively qu quickly so we can turn to the question of cre creeds and confessions and subscribing to those. Uh, but I thought it would get us into it if I just um, started just before where we left off. And that is, what do we mean by the spirituality of the church? And I started uh, by saying what we don't mean by it. So let me repeat that. Um, here's what we're not teaching in that doctrine. We're not saying that Christians should not be involved in politics. On the contrary, Christians, along with all creatures that God has made in this world, have God-given duties as citizens and members of communities. We are not saying that a Christian can't serve in politics, nor that his faith should not inform his service if he is so called. Uh, believers may have a providentially appointed calling to this service, and Reformed folk, at least, have always had a very high regard for such service. Um, following the, the remarkable statement that we read from Calvin's Institutes last time, no one ought to doubt that civil authority is a calling not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. Uh, a remarkable embrace of the importance of this work. With respect to the phrase separation in church and state, it can be a misleading phrase to the inattentive. It does not assert a separation of the religious and their religion from politics, nor does it separate service in public life and religion, nor does it assert the separation of society and religion, but rather it, it asserts that the two institutions, the church and its government, and the state and its government, ought to be separate. Well, with that uh, qualification, then this doctrine that has been so strong since the Reformation and especially developed in American Presbyterianism in the 18th and 19th century, um, it, it, the doctrine faces a difficulty uh, because uh, to have this doctrine depends on other doctrines being in place. But that's the contemporary problem. Generally speaking, among evangelicals, there are not sufficient materials in our thought world to construct the doctrine. Uh, so, for example, uh, it depends on there being a robust doctrine of the church. But evangelicalism, generally speaking, 
uh, has abandoned the doctrine of the church. Not only the doctrine of the church, but it requires a particularly uh, strong doctrine of the government of the church, jure divino, that is, appointed by Christ and thus limited by his word, with officers appointed to oversee the work of the Great Commission, all as strictly regulated by the word of God. So, too, the doctrine of calling has fallen on hard times, the calling of believers, uh, as distinct from the work of the church. Um, If the church tries to have a hand in everything, all the more the church is assigned to do, it begins to take up, it will not do well, but rather neglect its specific calling in Christ. Further, we have the loss of this scriptural distinction between sacred and secular. Not supposing the secular is somehow apart from God, but that it refers primarily to the this-worldly, as opposed to that which is primarily Godward. You can see this distinction quite plainly in 1 Timothy 4.8. There, Paul writes, while, the, while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, for it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Paul sees and acknowledges the secular, the this-worldly bodily training, but he just says that it it doesn't have the same value as godliness, so there is a hierarchy of concerns. This is not a doctrine uh, asserting that God is limited in his government over all things. God rules over all the civil governments in the order of providence, and Christ is ruling over his church and the world as the mediatorial king of the church on behalf of the church. But this is a doctrine about the proper limits upon all this worldly governments and the rights of believers in their callings. Civil government is limited. It cannot intrude on church government or the rights of citizens to serve God according to their conscience. Church government is limited. It cannot intrude on civil government or the rights of believers as citizens. Those are two very important sentences in understanding this. Now, uh, the source of this doctrine is found in Calvin. But, and he articulated very important principles, but they weren't fully realized in practice in Calvin's day. But let me give you a, a very um, pungent uh, statement from Calvin and the Institutes in Book 4, Chapter 20. Uh, this is a collation of materials from Sections 1 through 3. He wrote this, Man is under a twofold government, one of which pertains only to the establishment of civil justice and outward morality. But whoever knows how to distinguish between this present fleeting life and that future eternal life will without difficulty know that Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction are things completely distinct. It makes no difference what your condition among men may be or under what nation's laws you live since the kingdom of Christ does not at all consist in these things. Yet this distinction does not lead us to consider the whole nature of government a thing polluted, 
To think of doing away with civil government is an outrageous barbarity. Its function among men is no less than that of bread, water, sun, and air. There you see the um, distinction. This bore fruit particularly uh, a couple of centuries later in 1788 when the American Presbyterians amended the Confession of Faith. They amended it in two ways. One with respect to the civil magistrate. The version from the 17th century had allowed magistrates to call a synod. The Americans uh, rather robustly rejected that and yet understood that the government was a good with respect to the free exercise of religion. Here's how they put it in a new section um, in, in uh, these words. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving any preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person should be suffered, either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. Do you see the, the understanding that the church had rights as any institution in a, uh, a land ha had rights and that they ought to be respected and cared for, but it was just in the same way that civil magistrates cared for other um, free um, uh, groupings of citizens and functions. Most tellingly is in chapter 31, um, where even the original divines had this striking language. Synods and councils, that is the exercise, the bodies exercising church government, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by, by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. This uh, was a powerful fruition of these fundamental insights of uh, the Reformation. And uh, uh, Robert Dabney had given a good bit of uh, interest to this subject, and he insisted that the church's assumption of secular powers or the state's assumption of spiritual powers 
If it's allowed to go on, one will naturally produce the other. If church courts will handle and conclude civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, then an inerexable knowledge logic compels me to admit that the commonwealth has a right to know what they're handling and how they conclude them. He said this is unanswerable. If the church may direct its members as citizens in their political action and the church's power over the conscience being spiritual, once heartily admitted, is irresistible, and if the church is irresponsible to the state in giving that direction, then the church is practically supreme over the state. Charles Charles Hodge, uh, the great um, Princetonian, taught a similar doctrine. The limits assigned to the powers of church courts are all determined directly or indirectly by the word of God. Deriving all their authority from that source, they can rightly claim nothing but what is therein granted. As they are church courts, their authority is confined to the church. It does not extend to those who were without, are without, quoting the scripture's language there. It follows also from the same premises that being church courts, they must be confined in their jurisdiction to church matters. They have nothing to do with matters of commerce, agriculture, or the fine arts, nor with the affairs of the state. Now, conservative uh, Presbyterianism, or uh, of the old school variety, carried this doctrine right into the 20th century. The great J. Gresham Manchin in 1933, you remember one of the founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, wrote this, You cannot expect from a true Christian church any official pronouncements upon the political or social questions of the day. And you cannot expect cooperation with the state with anything involving the use of force. The function of the church is in its corporate capacity. Excuse me, the function of the church in its corporate capacity is of an entirely different kind. Its weapons against evil are spiritual, not carnal. And by becoming a political lobby through the advocacy of political measures, whether good or bad, the church is turning aside from its proper mission. Such theologians as as these sought to teach the people of God the true line of separation and independence between the sphere which is spiritual and the sphere which is civil, thus avoiding what they understood to be, quote, the poison of the union between church and state. Well, that's a little bit of the background of the doctrine. Now, let me just make a reference to um, the fact that the PCA constitutional documents fully embrace this point of view. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, section 1. The Lord Jesus Christ, as King and Head of the Church, hath therein appointed a government in the hands of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. No religious, this is preliminary principle 1, no religious constitution should be supported by the civil power further than may be necessary for the protection, protection and security common to all others. 
Book of Church Order 3.3. The sole function of the church as a kingdom and government distinct from the civil commonwealth are to pro- proclaim, administer, and to enforce the law of Christ revealed in the scriptures. And at the founding of the PCA, uh, a new section was added to uh, Book of Church Order 3 that I've mentioned to you before. Uh, this is from uh, the writings of James Henley Thornwell. Uh, Book of Church Order 3-4. The power of the church is exclusively spiritual. That of the state includes the exercise of force. The constitution of the church derives from divine revelation. The constitution of the state must be determined by human reason and the course of providential events. The church has no right to construct or modify a government for the state, and the state has no right to frame a creed or polity for the church. They are as planets moving in concentric orbits. Quote, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, citing Matthew 22, 21. Well, that's the uh, constitutional position of the PCA, but I will say that uh, when I was came into the PC, knowing that about its history and its uh, constitution, I was shocked regularly at general assemblies that people were posing boycotts and pronouncements <laughs> and this and that. And um, the sad thing that I discovered, uh, and I've said this publicly before, I, I don't I think it's just true. I'm not meaning to slander anybody. But the PCA came out of the old Southern Presbyterian Church, which was extraordinarily liberal. And it constantly made pronouncements and declared this and that and what the state ought to do and who ought to buy what and so on. All from a kind of liberal political point of view. Once folk in the PCA got out of that, they, they had complained bitterly against such pronouncements, and it seemed as if they might be doing it on the basis of spirituality. But it was clear once they got out, it was just because they were bitter about it because it was liberal politics. But now when they had a chance to be a majority and make their own conservative declarations on different things, uh, they felt somewhat unrestrained. But I will say that from uh, in the last 30 years, uh, the PCA has moved more and more to embrace and be faithful with respect uh, to this doctrine. I've actually been asked to go around the country and teach on it in, in many different places where when I first would offer these arguments, it seems as if nobody was interested at all. Um, let me give you just a few illustrations and then I'll turn to a time for questions. Perhaps this doctrine... Uh, nowhere is more uh, perfectly illustrated than in the American Presbyterian Church old school uh, just at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, The war began and uh, the General Assembly of the Church was to be held in Philadelphia. The the Church had not split, even though the country had split. Uh, Obviously, it was quite a thing to get delegates from the south and north together in one city. Um, And it looked as if it might be possible for the church not to split even though the country had. But uh, there was a resolution offered by a very prominent uh, 
minister from New York called Gardner Spring was adopted by a margin of 156 to 66. This is days when the assembly was very much delegated. It was a small group by way of comparison. It was adopted after five days of debate. (laughs) That was a different time and place. In our assembly, if a debate goes on more than 10 minutes, people are pulling their hair out. (laughs) I can hardly conceive of five days, days of debate. But in any case, a protest was filed, uh, and the, uh, Charles Hodge was the author of it. And um, the fact is, Hodge's own political uh, views were aligned with the majority position. But here's what he said in the protest. We deny the right of the General Assembly to decide the political question to what government the allegiance of Presbyterians as citizens is due, and its right to make that decision a condition of the membership of our church. The majority had said, if you're going to be a good Presbyterian, you have to support the federal government. But at that time, it may seem mysterious to us, but at that time there were many that thought that the primary government that they had allegiance to was their state government, and that the federal government was simply a collation of the states for certain purposes. That wasn't the principal uh, place where you saw your loyalty. And Hodge's point is that's a political question. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church had no right to intrude on that question. He goes, so, uh, let me get back into it. The assembly had no right to decide the political question to what government the allegiance of Presbyterians as citizens is due, and its right to make that decision a condition of membership in our church. The General Assembly, in thus deciding a political question, and in making that decision practically a condition of church membership in the church, has, in our judgment, violated the constitution of the church and usurped the prerogative of its divine master. For Hodge, as he later put it, the assembly's action was analogous to singing the star-spangled banner at the Lord's table. Well, uh, as I say, that's one of the preeminent. Let uh, let me just briefly refer to one document that I included in that uh, handout on uh, uh, practical illustrations of the doctrine and that was the declaration that the General Assembly made uh, in, uh, what was it, 19, um, uh, well, the 21st General Assembly. Uh, it was just at the beginning of, uh, it was in the first summer of uh, President Clinton's first presidency. And... Um, Early on, President Clinton had proposed changing the law with respect to uh, same-sex attracted people serving in the military. If you were discovered as a same-sex person, you would be dishonorably discharged. He proposed uh, what was called don't ask, don't tell. If if a same-sex attracted person doesn't make a big deal about it, 
the military are not going to investigate it and look into it. We'll just all live together with the point. And there was a great hue and cry about the matter. Um, and our session drafted this declaration, and there are four things to note about it. Um, the, uh, the policy, it was saying, we're not going to investigate these things and use them as a way to punish people who aren't themselves flaunting that. Second, for the first time, Christians who opposed uh, same-sex attracted actions and relationships were being accused of racism. It was being likened to racial hatred, say, between uh, whites and blacks, that Christians were persecuting same-sex attracted people. Um, the um, so that was the remember uh, uh, in accepting cases extraordinary. It had never been the case before that Christians advocating for historic Christian morality and thus opposing same-sex attractive behavior were never alleged to be virtually racist with respect to it. That it was merely a question of prejudice and a hurtful uh, dislike of someone different. And therefore, we felt duty-bound to say that no, we can love same-sex attracted people and want their best, but we think that proper morality is such that the sexual relationship is preserved uh, for a man and a woman. And, and further, to remind the country that if same-sex attracted morality was made to be morally legitimate, legitimate it has a deleterious effect in a culture. Uh, it's a threat to the family, to the culture more broadly, and it's particularly a threat to the people involved in it, that sin has deleterious effects in the life of people. And, um, but the point is, this long document takes no position on don't ask, don't tell. It does not presume to tell the president how to run the Pentagon, but it's trying to lay out the moral principles that ought to inform such a discussion and bear Christian testimony to one point of view on it all. And I, I think, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, no brag, just fact, as uh, uh, Will, uh, you know, some cowboy on TV used to say, um, the, uh, I think it accomplished its purpose to have a proper moral testimony concerning the teaching of the Word of God, while at the same time uh, preserving the state's right to consider and act on the matter, but to consider it in light of uh, at least some Christians' testimony as to what was true, uh, but that the church didn't presume to enter into the uh, question itself. And I'll say here, I tried to summarize briefly, but it's good to return to it. For our general, suppose our general assembly had said, uh, every Christian, if they're going to be a faithful Christian, as a citizen, they have to vote against anybody who's in favor of don't ask, don't tell. Well, 
that would have transgressed the right of Christian citizens for the church to do that. Consider, some believers may suppose that same-sex attractiveness is of such a serious sin that the military certainly ought to ask and potential service members certainly should tell. How can one trust the life uh, of another to a person who at their deepest level sense of self is willing to be deceptive? Other believers may suppose that don't ask, don't tell is the best prudential means of avoiding the greater harm of allowing homosexuals to serve openly in the armed services. Yet other believers may suppose that same-sex attracted people should not get a free pass, that they, along with others, ought to suffer and die for the protection of liberty and the prosperity that the, the United States enjoys. What gives the elders of the church the right to settle these questions? Certainly not the Lord and his word. In submission to Jesus, the elders must not usurp the rights of the people of the church in their capacity as citizens to judge in these matters. The church cannot advance the cause of Christ by disobeying Christ. Well, there are other illustrations that uh, I could speak of, but I want to uh, just uh, offer a, um, a quick summation on this. Um the um, and I'll close with uh, 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 an observation from uh, Robert Dabney in one of the last books of his life. It was published very late, eighteen ninety seven, the Practical Philosophy, and in it he discussions discusses by practical philosophy. He's basically uh, that's his term for moral philosophy, and so he's looking at all kinds of moral questions. Here's the way he put it. The history of human rights is that in their intelligent asserters, excuse me, let me get it right. The history of human rights is that their intelligent asserters usually learn the true grounds of those rights in the furnace of a fiction, affliction. That the posterity who inherit these rights hold them for a while in pride and an ignorant prescription. That after a while, when the true logic of the rights has been forgotten, and some plausible temptation presses them to do so, the next generation discards the precious rights bodily and goes back to the practice of the old tyranny. You may deem it a strange, pro- strange prophecy, but I predict that the time will come when this once free America In this once free America, when the battle for religious liberty will have to be fought over again and probably be lost because the people are already ignorant of its true basis and conditions. First time I read that, I was just stunned at at the farsight of the man. Um, But we'll conclude with this. What God has put asunder, let no man or church, or state join together. (laughs) All right, let's take a few minutes uh, for questions and then we'll press on to uh, creeds and confessions. So Dave, the session session wrote that letter that you just 
that you quoted from. Yes. And you said it had some effect. What effect did it have? Well, what it had. Did you did it, did you get a reply? What happened? Uh, we, <laughs> we it had a great effect on the PCA, and that was the chief effect that we were hoping for. Uh, it did go to all those people. We got a, a boilerplate language from a uh, letter back from the White House. We're always happy to hear from people and we'll, we'll p- attend very carefully to what you have to say and so on. Um, it got a little newspaper coverage, not a whole lot. Um, but it, it did have, I think, at least a, a limiting effect, especially on the race charges. Uh, as Christians, we weren't the only ones, but as Christians were pushing back and saying there is no analogy, in fact, that ought to be insulting to uh, uh, the, the race question between blacks and whites and so on. Uh, this is a question of, about morality that has been settled uh, for 2,000 years. And, and to say all of a sudden that it's equivalent to racial hatred is, is just slanderous. And that, it did help to have that proclaimed, a little bit at least. Any other uh, thoughts or questions um, on that matter? All right, so then let's turn to confessionalism. Um, This uh, has been a subject that I've given a good bit of attention to in uh, my career as a presbyter, both as a ruling elder and a teaching elder. And I think, again, it's one of the geniuses of uh, what American Presbyterian Church had to contribute to the life of the church in general. Um, So we ask, what is a confession? And what justifies such confessions? People opposed often call them human productions. What place does a human production have in the ruling of the church? This is a question that's not as much attended to today, but historically, Presbyterians at least, thought it was a very important question. Here's the testimony of a General Assembly in 1824 of the Presbyterian Church. Resolved that the opinion of this assembly, uh, in the opinion of this assembly, confessions of faith containing formulas of doctrine, and rules for conducting the discipline and worship proper to be maintained in the house of God are not only recognized as necessary and expedient, but as the character of human nature is continually aiming at innovation, it is absolutely requisite to the settled peace of the church and to the happy and orderly existence of Christian communion. Within the limits of Christendom, few are to be found in the attitude of avowed hostility to Christianity. The name of Christian is claimed by all, and all are ready to profess their belief in the Holy Scripture, to many reserving themselves the right of putting upon those scriptures whatever construction they please. In such a state of things, Without the aid of creeds and confessions, Christian fellowship can exist only in a very limited degree. The confession of faith and standards of our church 
church form a bond of fellowship in the faith of the gospel. Finally, the General Assembly recommends to all who are under their care steadfastly to resist every temptation, however presented, which may have for its object the relaxation of those bonds of Christian fellowship, which have hitherto been so eminently blessed of God for the order, edification, and extension of the Presbyterian Church. You see, so often it's alleged that confessions and creeds are church-dividing, but from the Presbyterian point of view, they said this is how church unity is possible. We have an agreed-upon statement of some of the essential characteristics of what the Bible teaches. Since the Bible is claimed by everybody for all kinds of doctrines and structures, you couldn't have unity just saying, we believe the Bible. You'd have to have some statement of how you believe the Bible in order for people to be united together who are of the same mind with respect to its teaching. Later in the century, A.A. Hodge, the son of Charles, argued from the same perspective when he urged that doctrinal standards secure the real cooperation of those who profess to work together in the same cause so that public teachers in the same communion may not contradict one another and thus pull down what the other is striving to build up. Well, that's the general idea. It is for the sake of fidelity and unity in fellowship. Now, I've already mentioned that, uh, at least for Presbyterians of uh, the American sort, there's a distinction made between members and officers. Um, Presbyterians have historically affirmed that the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice. They have been known as well for their vigorous commitment to the Westminster Standards, which are understood in prize as a true and faithful summary statement of the teachings of the Word of God. This commitment to a confessional standard is made concrete in the requirement that all officers of the Church subscribe to the standards, and we'll talk a little bit about what what this means. But Hodge, Hodge again ably sets the matter before us. In all churches, a distinction is made between the terms upon which private members are admitted to membership and the terms upon which office bearers are admitted to their sacred trusts of teaching and ruling. The church has no right to make anything a condition for membership, which Christ has not made a condition for salvation. The church is Christ's fold. The sacraments are seals of his covenant. All have a right to claim admittance who make a credible profession of the true religion. That is those, presumptively, who are people of Christ. This credible profession, of course, involves a competent knowledge of the fundamental doctrine of Christianity, a declaration of personal faith in Christ, and consecration to his service and a temper of mind and habit consistent therewith. On the other hand, no man can be inducted into any office of the church who does not profess to believe in truth and wisdom, the constitution and laws, 
which it will be his duty to conserve and administer. Otherwise, all harmony of sentiment uh, and all efficient cooperation in action would be impossible. So do you get that distinction? In terms of communion, nothing more than what it means to be a Christian. And the church can't add to that or take away. Um, but the office bearers in the church who are to teach and rule and thus help God's people on the path of discipleship must be those who've made a commitment to that church's understanding of some of the principal things that the Bible teaches. Now, people have sometimes said that uh, um, how uh, does the use of a man-made confession by the church find any justification at all? This problem is particularly acute for Presbyterians. The very confession they defend and affirm appears at first glance to contradict creed-making as well as creed-subscribing. For our confession of faith teaches, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. In chapter 1, section 8, the Old Testament and the New Testament, being immediately inspired by God in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to rest in an appeal unto them. Chapter 1, section 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. And finally, chapter 20, section 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if in matters of faith and worship. So how can the proposition that God is alone the Lord of the conscience, the Holy Spirit speaking in Christian as the supreme judge of controversies, be consistent with the subscription to Westminster Confession as a standard for ministerial admission and rule for doctrinal controversy? It's in light of these bold statements of scriptural sufficiency and authority in light of those statements, the burden of proof must be on uh, those who would defend confessional authority in this context. And our forefathers weren't unaware of the burden, nor were they unwilling to bear it. Um, the um, early discussions of subscription to confessions always began with a statement of the warrant of doctrinal confessions and only then moved to consider their appropriate use. And you see this beautifully in, uh, and I, to, to vindicate that statement, I have a, 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 oh, about 20 books where you can see that pattern. Nobody just starts in on, here's how the confession needs to be used and upheld and so on. They start with the idea of how do we even justify having such a thing as that. Samuel Miller, the great uh, the, um, I think he was the first professor 
at Princeton Theological Seminary, then called the uh, uh, College of New Jersey. Um, the, um, and Miller wrote a book, um, the uh, great title, The Utility and Importance of Creeds and Confessions Addressed Particularly to Candidates for the Ministry. It was published in 1839. He's an honored father of uh, uh, American Presbyterianism, lived from 1769 to 1850, and he was the first professor of ecclesiastical history and government uh, at Princeton. He was integral to the founding of the institution. Um, and uh, in this little booklet, he wrote, especially for candidates for ministry, uh, he wanted them to understand the importance of creeds and confessions for maintaining the unity and purity of the visible church. Those are the two principal points. He defined a confession as uh, an exhibition in human language of those great doctrines which are believed by its framers to be taught in holy scriptures, which are drawn out in regular order for the purpose of ascertaining how far those who wish to unite in church fellowship are really agreed on the fundamental principles of Christianity. Um, and in this discussion, Miller takes pains to emphasize that a confession adopted is not a law enacted by the church, for he denies that the church has any properly legislative power at all. He put it this way, creeds and confessions do not claim to be themselves laws of Christ's house or legislative enact enactments by which any set of opinions are constituted truths and which require on that account to be received as truths among the members of the family. They're not laws. They don't become truths because they're enacted. They can't be imposed on God's people. He says it this way. They only profess to be summaries extracted from Scripture of a few of those great doctr gospel doctrines which are taught by Christ himself and which those who make the summary in a particular case, uh, who made the summary, uh, concur in thinking are important and agree to make the test of their religious union. It is this formal summarizing that historic Presbyterians have unambiguously affirmed is not only lawful but expedient, an indispensable necessity to the harmony and purity of the visible church. Um, so, uh, we've already said, uh, they're for the sake of unity. Um, Miller put it this way, can a body of worshipers composed of Calvinists, Arminian, Pelagians, Arians, Socinians, all pray and preach in communion, in communion together, profitably and comfortably, each retaining the sentiments, feelings, and language appropriate to his denomination, this would make the house of God a miserable babble. Thus, we must either be perfectly indifferent to the great subjects that divide believers, 
or their intercourse must be productive of jarring and distressful relationships. So, the point is, then, that um, the church publicly affirms summaries of its understanding of scripture teaching to be uh, the foundation of their union. Um, No church can hope to maintain a homogeneous character. No church can be secure in either purity or peace without some test of truth explicitly agreed upon and adopted by her, something recorded, something publicly known, something capable of being referred to when most needed, which not merely this or that private member supposes to have been received, but to which the church as such has agreed to adhere to as the bond of union. So the first point, union. The second, it's for the sake of truth. Uh, For the sake of truth, drawing out what uh, folk understand uh, Christ to be teaching us in the scriptures and to publicly proclaim that truth in relationship to prevailing errors. It's for the sake of candor. Uh, That is, that um, uh, every church owes to other churches, to other bodies who differ with them, a statement freely of what they think the Bible teaches and which they are obliged to defend in relationship to other Christians who who differ with them. Um, The... uh, And so, in an odd sense, if all, with honesty and clarity, declare what they believe, that can be the basis of fair argument and discussion, which might lead more and more toward unity, not blindly hiding behind your own walls, but honestly, honestly, straightforwardly, proclaiming your view and listening to what someone else has proclaimed and to be way, w- willing to weigh both of those summaries against uh, what the Word of God says. Uh, fourthly, they're for the sake of study. They're great aids. Uh, uh, the shorter catechism for younger folk, the larger catechism for uh, s- students and the confession of faith for the whole church. Um, and uh, they they're tested statements preserving the truth of Scripture that become pedagogically uh, very powerful because of their conciseness. Um, we have in the 33 chapters of the Confession of Faith as grand a statement of some of the essential characteristics of biblical teaching you could ever find, and it's in a little book. Um, it uh, preserves the experience of the church as it's battled through doctrinal controversies, what comes out as the sem- summary embraced preserves that as an achievement that doesn't have to be rehearsed over again in the next generation. We've been through that. We saw those assaults. Here's what we came up with. Um, the um, So, uh, Miller put it this way. When... The friends of truth in all ages, even those most tenacious of the rights of private judgment, 
and most happy in the enjoyment of Christian liberty, have invariably found it necessary to resort to the adoption of creeds, there is really no other practicable method of maintaining the unity and purity of the Church of Christ. In other words, we haven't had to go through Nicaea over and over and over again. That became part of the heritage of the church from that period, captured in that language. We don't didn't have to go through uh, Chalcedon again, or uh, the great uh, controversies concerning um, the nature of the atonement at the time of Anselm, and, and so on. Um, Miller then wants to say, you, you can see the necessity of the creeds from the fact that the opponents of creeds all have them. They just don't have them publicly announced and adhered to. Uh, in a non-creedal church, nevertheless, some majority holds some point of views that they know are essential to it, and if you don't un- come to understand that intuitively or something, uh, you can't be a part of that group. Since everyone does it, Miller says, it is more honest and straightforward uh, to do it straightforwardly and have it be publicly available, publicly liable to assault from Scripture, publicly liable to defense or chain alteration if it's shown to be inaccurate. Um, uh, I thought that was one of his most provocative uh, arguments. Um, And uh, then lastly, we could put it this way, it serves to facilitate the transmission of the same doctrine from age to age. I find my understanding in the Bible captured beautifully in the words of the 17th century, which in the 18th century, in the 19th century, no matter all the things that have changed in the world and our conception of the world, that has preserved a form of words which so resonates with my reading of the scripture that I find them precious. And that's a remarkable thing to have take place over four centuries um, and to hope for uh, in the future. Um, Charles A. H. Hodge summed it up in these words. Creeds and confessions, therefore, have been found necessity found necessary in all ages and branches of the church, and when not abused, have been useful to mark and disseminate and preserve the attainments made to the knowledge of Christian truth by any branch of the church in any crisis of development, too, to discriminate the truth from the glosses of false teachers and to present in its integrity and due proportions. Three, to act as the basis of ecclesiastical fellowship, among those so nearly uh, agreed as to be able to labor together in harmony, and finally for to be a great instrument uh, in the work of popular um, uh, instruction. Well, um, I think I will pause there. I have just a little more to say about creeds and confessions, but I'll start our next time uh, with that. You had a chance, I hope, to look over some of the documents I gave you, uh, the um, uh, uh, several statements from some of the, our great writers on um, 
the uh, on creeds and subscription, Turretin Miller and uh, Thornwell and so on. Uh, on the extent of creeds, uh, two great writers, one Scottish and one American. Um, uh, what it's meant by adopting a confession of faith from Hodge and then Dabney's Broad Churchism. If you have questions about anything you've read in that material or it, that you may read afterward, uh, don't hesitate to bring them up and uh, we can um, take some time with them. So, any thoughts, reflections? Hey, Dave. Yes. Thank you for that excellent um, explication. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm wondering if you're going to say more in the coming weeks at some point about the practice of granting is the term exceptions to yes. candidates coordination the basis for them etc et so the answer is yes you will yes oh, good. I look forward to that. next time <laughs> next time that that was the remaining that i mentioned that i didn't want to try and start at this hour right. well yeah we'll focus pretty much entirely on that sit back and look forward to that then. Any other question or comment or reflection? I, I hope these things are interesting. It can be kind of a niche interest, but um, it, it, there is a great history to all of this, and it does have a very significant role in preserving the life of the church. Bonnie or Bill? It's, it's Bonnie. Yeah. Um, with the... Um, statement that churches that don't follow creeds that they have their creeds even though they aren't written down yes uh, I guess what I was thinking when I was reading that was um, that even though they have their creeds their creeds are evolving constantly yes so there's not yes. any um, well it constantly evolving and constantly I guess, causing upheaval within those denominations or within those churches that are quote-unquote non-denominational. Yes. So that what you said, what you were reading was just so good to remind us that it's not replacing scripture, but it's helping us to learn more about the word. Yes. Having these creeds because of the way that the folks that were at those um conferences that wrote these down that we have that as a tool and yes it just that's what it made me think of mm. wonderful point bonnie um not yeah it's constantly evolving and very often constantly evolving according to a strong personality uh that may be eccentric in some way unbalanced in thinking but wouldn't be apparent and can really lead a group astray. There's no external um, uh, uh, point of accountability that's been publicly expressed. And so in each case, the whole matter can be up for grabs depending on the force of a particular personality. Dave, over time, have there been... Have there been any changes, edits, amendments to the Westminster Confession? There have been. There are very few. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Um, the, uh, 
the American church, the largest part of the American church, did um, offer some additions. They entered a chapter on the Holy Spirit, uh, a chapter on missions. The conservative churches, when they came out, tended to drop those. Just quick uh, uh, point. Uh, it was said that the Confession of Faith was deficient because it didn't have a chapter on the Holy Spirit. You have a chapter on the triune God. Uh, you have a chapter on Christ, but no chapter devoted to the Holy Spirit. And so it was thought that that was a deficiency. Well, those who opposed adding the chapter said, you folks don't understand the doctrine of the Spirit. Uh, first of all, there are probably 12 chapters on the Holy Spirit. Because every chapter that has to do with the application of Christ's work is a chapter about the Holy Spirit. But in the scripture, who I don't know whose phrase this was, maybe John Murray's, but he said that the, the Holy Spirit is the hidden person of the Trinity. The Spirit's work is not to draw attention to himself, but rather his work is to bring us to Christ, to make us like Christ, to, to uh, mold within us a Christ-like character. And they said that, in fact, the confession of faith is more scriptural by not having a particular focus on the Spirit, uh, the way there is a focus on Christ in the Gospels and uh, the triune God throughout the whole history of redemption. Anyway, I thought that was a very interesting controversy, but the Americans uh, changed the, the Confession of Faith and Catechisms in a few places in 1788 when they first adopted it. They were all pretty much in relationship to the new circumstances of uh, uh, national life, um, taking out what many, I certainly agree, were Erastian elements in it that didn't belong there. And then over the history of it, uh, there were several attempts to amend it. Uh, finally, uh, the confession itself began to recede in the self-consciousness of the church. And so what those denominations did was just simply adopt more creeds. So if they wanted something modern, they, the, the, the Barman Declaration, for example. When I was first a ruling elder in the United Presbyterian Church, we didn't have a confession. We had a book of confessions. I think there were probably seven or eight uh, confessions. And you, you see, if it's essentially, that was so you wouldn't have any confession. <laughs> there were so many. Well, how, so they weren't even consistent with one another. <laughs> it was a, a way of undermining confessionalism. Uh, Dr. Gershon is funny. He, he would always say that people criticized the UP Church for not being confessional. He said, we're the most confessional church in the history of Christianity. We've got so many confessions. It's just, we don't adhere to it. <laughs> um, that, it, it, it's very hard to amend the confession of faith in the PCA. It would take, uh, I think it's three quarters, three quarters, and three quarters. Uh, three quarters of one assembly, three quarters of the presbyteries, and three-quarters of the next assembly. Uh, it, it would be hard to garner three-quarters vote for having 
pizza for a snack. <laughs> but many times, I think it's a bad thing that we don't amend the confession if we think it needs it. Because we can't allow it to a culture to grow up that this is somehow sacrosanct. Uh, there are several places where it could be amended profitably in my mind. Um, and the point is just to do it would be healthy for the church. Um, but the one argument that does carry some weight with me that people often raise is they say, look, we are just not living in a creed-making age. We don't have the kind of scholarship, the use of language, the seasoned engagement in public theological controversy that belonged to those earlier ages. And so we'd likely not be very adept at it. And I, I, I certainly think there's something to that. I would never want to see, for example, a wholesale uh, review and revision um, to give you an idea, I mean, I'm embarrassed by our preliminary principles, the form they're in in our Book of Church Order. I think it was in 2008, somebody decided that a committee needed to be appointed to improve the language. And in almost every place where they changed it, it's not an improvement at all. And uh, several significant points were lost because they didn't realize the relationship of one clause to another. Um, the, uh, I, in fact, I was just looking at all that again this week, and I, I really have in mind, at, at some point, asking for a committee to be appointed to go back and undo that, or at least make sure that the, the propositions that were important that didn't find their way into the modern language be reclaimed in some way. Um, but anyway, that's a good good question. Uh, to Steve's point. Um, it used to be called declaring your scruples. Now the language is exceptions. Um, and that's been very controversial in the PCA. Um, and I'll try and briefly describe some of that controversy. But um, just to give you a sense of my own sense, we don't insist that every officer has to affirm every word in every sentence of the Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And that's right. Uh, It's not inspired the way God's word is, that every word comes from the Lord. Um, We require the affirmation of the propositions that are found there. Propositions, you know, well, they can be asserted in uh, different languages. Uh, je t'aime, amo. Uh, that's I love you, French and Latin. Um, the, so typically, historically, Americans have said, I can say I affirm the confession, but here, this word, I don't affirm it in this sense, but in this sense. And then the body has to decide whether that's within the proper parameters of that, to give you a sense that confession of faith says that God is without body parts and passions. A fellow may come and say, 
Um, I think I know what the confession means by passions. That is that God is not liable to be subjected to something apart from his own will. But the way we use the word passions today, it sounds like we're saying that God doesn't have emotions, that he doesn't love or something. And so I, I affirm what the confession is getting at, but I don't like that word. Or um, you could, and there I prefer a different word. Or you could say, I'm happy with the word, but here's the sense in which I can affirm that word. Those are all legitimate points. And what a candidate is supposed to do when he reads through it, he's supposed to say, he can't have these private reservations. He's to bring them before the court and let the court say, yeah, sure, that's not an issue. Um, There are other areas where the confession is just wrong. Um, But they're very minor areas. In the chapter on the covenant, it says that the the Bible language for covenant is frequently trans uh, fre- frequently uh, I can't remember how that goes something like uh, uh, taken as a testament. Well, in the seventeenth century, testament often did appear, but. By our period, I think there's only one verse in Hebrews that anybody thinks that word should be translated a testament. Um, now, that doesn't change the doctrine of the covenant. And so that's one that I think we amend. There's no reason to keep that in there. But uh, th- there would be a place where a person would just say, you know, I, d- I don't think that's correct, but I don't think it affects at all my affirming the propositions of the chapter on uh covenant well uh, we've gone a little over time but uh, I, uh, I'm grateful that you're all here tonight and happy we could uh, uh, get through spirituality and get well into confessionalism and we'll take that up next time I did send out some readings related to next time we're looking at um, uh, the officers of the church um, and uh, there are a number of I- interesting things there, particularly the material on the diaconate. Um, from the beginning at New Hope, we paid special attention to that office for a variety of reasons. And you'll want to look at, uh, especially the little document that our session produced about our understanding of the diaconate, because it is a little different than what might be t- popularly thought. When I was a ruling elder, uh, in a big Presbyterian church, the office of the diaconate was really taken to be like uh, the janitors for the church. And um, as I studied that matter more, that seemed to me to be a profound defect in uh, understanding of the office and it, the notion of its spiritual function in the life of a church. And so we tried to restore something of that and... Uh, but you'll want to look at those in particular. Well, thank you all very much. Enjoyed being with you. Uh, have a great rest of the week. I think we're supposed to be in the upper 60s uh, <laughs> at the close of this week and then plunged back into frigid temperatures. So I hope we survive. <laughs> Good to be with you all.
Let me pray for us. Father, grant us grace uh, to profit uh, from these uh, great thinkers in the past. We uh, embrace the image of C.S. Lewis that there's nothing better for us than to have the clean sea breezes of the ages blowing through our minds to help uh, clear uh, cobwebs of contemporary confusion. Um, Not as if our forefathers are infallible in any way, but the mistakes they make are not the ones that we would be liable to, and the things they see maybe are not things that we would fully grasp without their help. And we pray that we might be preserving, uh, be part of preserving this heritage of the church and to pass it on. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.